1964, Barry Goldwater's campaign ran the slogan, In your heart, you know he's right. It was a play on Goldwater's conservative positions. In response, his opponent Lyndon Johnson used the counter-slogan, In your guts, you know he's nuts. The American people liked LBJ's response and voted for him in a landslide. Catchy lines like these can help make or break an entire campaign. You can find out about these slogans and more in Words to Win By, a new book from Apollo Publishers. This book is brimming with 500 color images from American presidential campaigns covering every election from 1900 to 2020. It showcases the visuals and slogans that defined America's leaders for millions of voters and changed the course of history. We are giving away five copies of Words to Win By to five lucky listeners. To sign up for the book giveaway, click on the link in the description to subscribe. At the end of March, every subscriber will be entered into the drawing for the giveaway. Again, to sign up for the book giveaway of Words to Win By, click on the link in the description or go to our website, thisamericanpresident.com, to subscribe. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast. And the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's guest is Benjamin T. Arrington. He goes by Todd Arrington, and he came out with a book. It's called The Last Lincoln Republican, The Presidential Election of 1880. And we're very excited to have him on the show to talk about uh, a very brilliant, fascinating president, uh, one of the more obscure presidents in American history. Uh, But I'm really happy to have him here because... I think that oftentimes these presidents that are considered obscure are, quite frankly, they're underappreciated. They're the kind of presidents that uh, maybe they didn't serve during uh, one of the famous periods in American history, and and unfairly often they're called mediocrities, but that's not the case. Uh, And so uh, Todd has done a lot of research on James Garfield, and so we're glad to have you here on the show. Welcome, Todd. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on, and uh, I appreciate the chance to talk about a president that, uh, yes, I think has gotten unfairly labeled as obscure. So I'm trying. We're 
a lot of us are trying to change that now. So thank you. (laughs) Well, so you have written this book, but you, in your day job, you work at his historic site. Is that right? Yeah, I do. I've worked for the National Park Service for a little over 21 years now. And the last 11 of those years, I've been at uh, James A. Garfield National Historic Site. We're in Mentor, Ohio, uh, which is probably 25 minutes or so east of downtown Cleveland. And we are Garfield's home and farm or or what's left of that property. Uh, And this is also the site from which he ran for president in 1880. That's great. So you, in addition to going through the scholarly endeavor of writing a book, you basically, you live and you breathe the the place that he lived in. You you know the setting and everything like that. So there's an added dimension to this. That's true. Um, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, a National Park Service employee, of course, but I'm also a historian. And, you know, I have the, you know, not only the Park Service background, but the academic background. And um, so this, when I came to this park, uh, again, about 11 years ago, it was a perfect fit for me because it allowed me to, of course, continue my my career, but also really get into a place where the history was was history that I really was interested in, the Civil War era, Reconstruction, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So this has been a great fit for me professionally and personally, and, and then really the opportunity to write this book uh, was was a wonderful opportunity as well. And I guess I should also say I have, you know, wonderful co-workers uh, who, many of whom have been there longer than me <laughs> and mm. and know Garfield as well or better, you know, certainly better than I do. So, you know, really any one of them probably could have written this book. But, um, you know, I'm just the one that, that, that happened to take it on. But yeah, so I do. I, I kind of live and breathe Garfield every day. Right. Now, give me an idea of the context uh, of America in 1880. We know it's a, a decade and a half since the end of the Civil War. The Gilded Age, as you talked about Reconstruction, people think about robber barons. What do people get right and what do people get wrong about this era? Well, I mean, this is, as you say, it's post-Civil War. And, and in, in many people's minds, it's really even post-Reconstruction. Now, uh, there's this what I think, you know, is, is obviously an incorrect uh, view that Reconstruction ended really as part of the compromise that saw Rutherford B. Hayes assume the presidency in, in, in 1877 after this very disputed election between he and, and d- the Democrat Samuel J. Tilden. Um, I, I would argue that Reconstruction was not over, and I would also argue that one of the few uh, Republicans who was saying that publicly was James Garfield. So many Republicans by 1880 really just wanted to be done with this whole issue of, you know, what had led to the Civil War and dealing with slavery and then dealing with with uh, emancipation and, and reconstruction and, and trying to provide uh, physical safety and equality for, for the formerly enslaved in the South. A lot of Republicans were just kind of done with all of this. They they felt like they had done everything that they said they would do and that they needed to do. They had, you know, ended ended slavery. They had uh, embraced emancipation and they had passed three reconstruction amendments to the constitution. Uh, and so they, they were really looking for, for other issues and they were looking for other alliances that would keep the party in power. And they were finding those primarily with industrialists and financiers, people like that. This is really where the Republicans start to 
to uh, build up the reputation as being the the party of big business. And there were a few very vocal Republicans, uh, foremost among them, James Garfield, who was still telling the Republican Party, no, we still have a lot of work to do here to, you know, to to guarantee the the, the safety and, and the equality of the formerly enslaved, but even more so to really make sure that we we're we're saying that we are that we really are who we say that we are, whether it's who we said we were in 1776 when we wrote that all men are created equal, or whether it's you know the ensuring the new birth of freedom that Abraham Lincoln talked about in the Gettysburg Address. So Garfield is in 1880 is one of the Republicans that's still really pushing this this issue and trying to to keep Republicans focused on who they are as a party. And of course, that's a party that was formed in the in the mid 1850s that was dedicated to at least some degree of equality for everyone, racial, uh, economic, uh, political, legal, what have you. Yeah, that's fascinating. And one thing is that he kind of becomes this, it's kind of like the, the, the voice in the wilderness or kind of the conscience of the party in that time when the party was just basically doing what was in its political incentive, which was to move on from that and become... <laughs> kind of the protector of American prosperity with the tariffs. But here's Garfield saying, wait a minute, what was what what was the point of the Civil War? Right. And what was what did we gain from it? And looking at it from from the the standpoint of, well, the, there's this issue with four million African Americans who've been who've been freed. And what what is Lincoln's legacy going forward there? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, there's, in fact, there's this, and I, I can't remember the exact quote, uh, it's escaping me, but there's a great quote in his diary where he's, this is before he runs for president. So this would be probably late 1870s or so, where he's talking about going to a soldier's reunion. And he makes this comment that it's, it's um, one of these reunions that's just too much of, you know, the old blue and gray. And, and he's really, I think, foreshadowing uh, what is, what is about to happen with the, with the the whole idea of the lost cause that you know the that you know the southerners fought nobly and it didn't matter what they were what the two sides were fighting about and it was all about you know disagreements over the constitution or states rights or basically anything but slavery and of course James Garfield who was vocally anti-slavery as a young man before the civil war um, two days after fort sumter writes this powerful letter that I quote all the time, where he says in the letter, two days after Fort Sumter, the war will soon assume the shape of slavery and freedom. The world will so understand it, and I believe the final outcome will redound to the good of humanity. So here, two days after the war begins, you know, James Garfield's already got it pegged. He's saying it's all about slavery. And, you know, reputable historians today obviously agree with that, 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 you know, yes, there were lots of other issues, floating around out there, but ultimately they can all be traced back to disagreements over slavery and the expansion of slavery. And Garfield is doing exactly what you said there in, in eight, as late as 1880, saying, what was this all about if we're just going to abandon uh, the, the formerly enslaved and we're going to leave them to the devices of white Southern Democrats who are moving very overtly and very quickly to reestablish white supremacy as quickly as possible in the South. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is kind of the position Garfield is in 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 1880, where he's trying to convince his fellow Republicans, we we still have a lot of work to do here. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, uh, 
If I were to ask you just characterizing Garfield's background uh, and to do that succinctly, how would you describe him? I mean, there, there are things that we know about him. He, he was seemed like a very scholarly person. He seemed like a devout Christian. Uh, what, what else is there that uh, to kind of give a picture of what he was like on in his rise to the presidency? Yeah, he well, he he was born very poor. Um, you know, he was he was the last president who was actually born in a log cabin. Um, his father died when when the future president was only about eighteen months old, so he never really knew his dad uh, because of his dad's very, very early death. Um, he was very close with his mother growing up. He was the youngest of four children, so he was kind of the baby of the family. Um, and he was what you said he 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 was an academic. He was a scholar. Uh, before politics or before the army, um, and uh, you know he he was quite quite devout, uh, a, a devout member of the Disciples of Christ. Um, so he was religious, you know, his, his entire life. But he also was he was very curious, and he wasn't you know he didn't get bogged down by religious dogma. He he was very open to science and to different interpretations of things. And, you know, he was very willing to consider evolution versus creation, for example. Um, so yeah, he did come from, uh, from, from Northeast Ohio, really the, the bulk of his life, uh, other than Washington DC and, and a couple of years in the army was spent here in the, 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 Cle- the greater Cleveland area as we would think of it now. Um, but yeah, he, he came from, uh, uh, you know, a, a very poor, background. He worked, you know, he did farm work. He worked as a canal boy on the Ohio and Erie Canal for a while. Um, and then, you know, his mother convinced him to go to school and he found he had a talent for, uh, for education. And, you know, he swore that no one in school would ever outwork him. And so he sometimes studied up to 20 hours a day just to make sure he was getting the best grades in the class. So very driven, very ambitious. And then this carried on to him going on to Williams College up in Massachusetts. That's where he really got infused with with abolitionism um, and then came back to Ohio, started teaching, became a, uh, a, what they called the principal of what's now a, a private liberal arts four-year college. Um, and then, of course, when the civil – you know, got into politics, became a, a Republican – uh, was elected to the Ohio State Senate in in, uh, in the late 1850s, and he was there as a part-time state senator, but also as this uh, college principal or president, as we would think of it today, when the Civil War came, and then of course joined the uh, the Union Army. Right. So he he really had one of those very impressive uh, rises in terms of status, and it was like self-made person, basically self-made man in many ways. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, he really is a very classic uh, American, you know, pull himself up by the bootstraps, Horatio Alger kind of kind of story. You know, born literally dirt poor in a in a log cabin with a dirt floor, and then you know, in just forty nine years of life, becomes you know an army general and a congressman and a senator elect, and then eventually the president of the United States. It's interesting because so. In, in the title of your book, he's the last Lincoln Republican. So there's kind of this lineage that you're pointing out that he had from the Lincoln era of Lincoln's work with the 13th Amendment and emancipation program, so on and so forth. Um, and yet Lincoln was also somebody that wanted to unify the country uh, in uh, as far as the, the after the Civil War. Um, and what I thought was ironic about that was that uh, it sounded like Garfield didn't have 
at least during Lincoln's presidency, he didn't have a very high opinion of Lincoln. He called him a second-rate Illinois lawyer, which is what many people called him at the time. Uh, what was his uh, relationship or uh, opinion of Lincoln, and how did that evolve? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and you're absolutely right that Garfield did express some frustration with Lincoln during Lincoln's presidency. Um, you know, Garfield is a very, very dedicated Republican. So he's, you know, very excited when when Lincoln is elected in 1860. Um, and obviously, as I've already you know shared, he, he, he has very strong opinions about the issue of slavery and about secession uh, when that comes to pass. Um, it, Garfield really is frustrated by Lincoln during the, the Civil War because, as I, I quoted that letter a minute ago, you know, where Garfield says two days after Sumter that it's all about slavery. Well, Garfield then feels like the minute the Confederates fired on Fort Sumter, Abraham Lincoln should have said, we, the United States, are fighting not only to preserve the Union, but also to end slavery in the United States. Because Garfield was so passionate about this issue, about abolition, uh, he felt you know Lincoln should come out and say what the war was really all about. Everybody knew it, even Southerners, even though they didn't want to admit it. And certainly after the war, you know, tried to to scrub any mentions of slavery from memoirs or anything like that. But but um, you know, Garfield was just frustrated with Lincoln because he really felt like Lincoln should should say from day one this war is 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 about abolishing, ending slavery, because how in the world do you put the country back together if the war is truly about slavery with that issue still hanging over everything? How do you put that, how do you put the country back together? How do you negotiate a peace with the South and bring the South back into the, into the United States, but allow them to keep slaves? It, it can't be done. Lincoln obviously knew this from day one. Um, Lincoln also, and I think history has borne Lincoln out on this issue, you know, Lincoln also had a, a very good sense of timing and when was the country going to be ready to accept that. And it was not on April 12th, 1861. So, of course, we all know the story that, you know, Lincoln waits and waits and waits until finally he, you know, in the summer of 1862, uh, writes the Emancipation Proclamation, the, the draft, shares it with his cabinet. William Seward, the Secretary of State, insists that he wait until there's a military victory. That comes at Antietam. Uh, in September of 1862, and therefore he he then issues the uh, preliminary proclamation on September 22nd, 1862. And Garfield, by the way, is overjoyed by this. You know, he he says the president's heart is right. I hope he will be able to you know to to carry it out, carry out this uh, this mission to the full. Um, but uh, but that's when he also makes the comment that you know strange that that such a grand proclamation would come from a second rate Illinois lawyer. So mm -hmm. so you know he 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 is frustrated by Lincoln because uh, he felt Lincoln should um, should have made it about slavery from should have said it was about slavery from from day one. That's that's very interesting because much has been made of the fact that Lincoln was not an abolitionist in the way that William Lloyd Garrison was an abolitionist. And Lincoln was somebody who merely wanted to restrict slavery, uh, slavery's expansion, and hope that it would die an, a natural death as opposed to really strike at the institution. He felt that that would do more harm than good. Where did Garfield fall on these issues? I mean, I, I don't get the sense that he was a William Lloyd Garrison abolitionist, but I, I, 
I get the sense that he wasn't as pragmatic as Lincoln was. You know, Lincoln obviously as president had to deal with running the war and not angering the border states and whatnot. What? How did it sounded like Garfield was? You know what I mean? Like where where did he kind of fall in that spectrum? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly he he's much more if you want to use the term radical on abolition that then Lincoln and, you know, people, many people think, you know, oh, you know, Lincoln was an abolitionist and that's why he was elected in 1860 and therefore he ended slavery. And that's just not the case at all. You know, Lincoln, although he personally was, was, a you know, was very much opposed to slavery. He didn't feel like at least before the war began, he had any constitutional authority to do anything about it where it existed. The, the issue there, as you mentioned, is this this idea of the expansion of slavery. That's really what Republicans were were concerned about at the beginning, really, when the party was formed. It was all a, re- a reaction to the Kansas-Nebraska Act is, is the, really the catalyst that allowed the, the party to, to form. So, you know, Lincoln comes into the White House, uh, is, and, and even at that point, as president, is not an abolitionist yet. Um, so Garfield certainly is more, you know, more, more, uh, serious about abolition at, at that point. But he, I, I would agree that he's not quite to the level of like a William Lloyd Garrison, who you mentioned, because Garrison is one of these, one of these abolitionists who is so, uh, so, ab- so opposed to slavery that, you know, he feels the constitution is illegitimate because mm-hmm. it, you know, in the form of the, of the, the three-fifths compromise basically is a pro-slavery document. And it allows for the existence of slavery. So Garrison is more radical on this than even Frederick Douglass, because Frederick Douglass, for example, who knew Garfield and 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 you know spoke for Garfield during the 1880 campaign, and who Garfield actually ended up giving a civil service position to once he became president. Frederick Douglass um, feels that you know the Constitution itself can can it, it, we can work with this. But obviously, there need to be some amendments. There needs to be some. There need to be some changes to the document, so that it 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 provides uh, equality before the law for for everyone, regardless of race. Um, so you know, Garfield is, I guess, if you're going to put you know Lincoln on one end and and Garrison on the other, then you know, yeah, you would put you would put James Garfield sort of in the middle there, I guess. But you know, we know of at least two instances that are verified and, and, you know, with evidence that of Garfield helping, uh, you know, encountering, uh, enslaved people who are trying to escape and are moving through the North and he helps them. Um, so, you know, he, he was serious enough about it to at least go that far. Um, so yeah, he, he's, uh, but I would say between, you know, Garrison and Lincoln, he, he, you'd, you'd put him in the middle. Right now, what was his rise in the House as a congressman? What was that like? What, what, how did he? What was kind of the secret to his success? Well, of course, when when he when he ran for Congress the first time, which was in 1862, he was in the army. You know, he had he had he had joined the Union Army, and by by this point uh, in 1862, he was a brigadier general, um, and he had served. You know, he had been a troop command. You know, he had commanded a regiment. He'd commanded a brigade. Um, and uh, Republicans in Northeast Ohio wanted to put him up for Congress, and he basically said, "Well, I'm not coming home to campaign, <laughs> um, but otherwise, do what you will." And so they put his name up, and of course, he was serving in the army, and so he he and this was a uh, was a relatively 
you know, reliably Republican area. So he didn't have any trouble being elected. Um, and then, of course, he had this very powerful sort of inner debate with himself about would he, should he really go to the House of Representatives or should he stay in the army? Because the war, of course, is still going on. As, it, as, as the system was set up then, he's elected in the fall of 1862, but that next Congress doesn't, you know, isn't seated until December of 63. So he's got over a year to still stay in the army, and that's exactly what he does. And, you know, he goes to Washington at one point and, and um, actually gets, a, uh, gets, a, an, a, gets an audience with Lincoln, and, uh, and Lincoln you know, basically asks Lincoln, what should I do? And obviously Lincoln tells him, you know, he's got more generals than he knows what to do with, but he doesn't have enough reliable Republican votes in Congress. And so Garfield says, I didn't feel it was appropriate to, you know, consult my own wishes when the president asked me to go to Congress. So that's what he does. And he stays in the House for the next 17 years. So he's in the House, you know, really up until he's nominated to be uh, the Republican presidential candidate. So he gets very, very uh, skilled at you know, learning how the rules of the house work. Um, you know, he becomes very highly regarded as a speaker, as an orator. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he at one point, you know, wants to become speaker of the house and that doesn't work out because the Republicans don't win the majority in that next election. He is the, what we would think of today as the house minority leader for a while. Um, but he, you know, he champions civil rights legislation in the house um, and, uh, at one point in 1879, he, uh, makes a very powerful speech. Uh, the Democrats were, were, um, basically threatening what we would think of today as a government shutdown, <laughs> um, which, you know, we've all been through a few of those. Um, but, uh, Democrats were basically threatening to not pass appropriations for the entire federal government unless the Republicans agreed to, you know, to pull federal, federal marshals out of the South. Uh, and of course, the marshals were in the South to protect African Americans, especially when they went to vote. And, uh, and Garfield gave an extremely powerful speech that um, I know some historians, uh, including Heather Cox Richardson, who's, you know, the sort of the, the preeminent hi historian of the Republican Party right now, uh, have said, you know, this is the speech that really made Garfield a potential presidential candidate in 1880, where, you know, he just absolutely shreds the Democrats in this speech on the floor of the House in March of 1879 about the, the, their threat to not pass appropriations. So he's in the House for, you know, a good long time, 17 years, and, you know, really serves uh, as, a, as a, he serves as the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee for a while. He's the House Minority Leader. Uh, doesn't quite make it to become speaker, but um, really does just about everything else he could in the House in those 17 years. And that speech you're referring to, that's that that's called the Revolution in Congress speech. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And okay. I, I did uh, I did spend some time on that when I wrote in, in that chapter of the book, you know, talking about this speech, what he said, what he meant, uh, what the situation was at the time. And then also the fact that, hey, you know, he really got some very, very good press from that that speech. And, and as again, as Dr. Richardson says, you know, that that's the speech in her mind, at least, that really made him uh, a very viable potential presidential candidate. It, it, it's basically like the Cooper Union speech for Lincoln. It, sure. Or people in modern terms, it would be like the Barack Obama 2004 convention speech where it's this guy's now on the national map after this speech. Uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, Garfield is, is to some degree, at least already on the national map. 
um, obviously he's, you know, very well known inside Ohio. Um, he's, but yeah, I think you're right. He, he, this is, this is what, this is something that gets him a lot of national attention and makes people in other parts of the country sort of, you know, perk their ears up a little bit and, and pay attention to this guy from, uh, from Ohio. As I said earlier, you know, he, he was very highly regarded as a speaker. So he was, uh, in demand in, in other parts of the country, especially during campaign season, uh, to go to other states, you know, usually states around Ohio, but but not always. He did go to New England and New York and places like that uh, to give speeches. Um, so he's got something of a following or a reputation, but uh, but nothing to the degree of some of the other the other people who were in fact seeking the the, 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 the excuse me the Republican nomination in 1880, like former President Ulysses S. Grant or James Blaine or John Sherman or any of these folks. Right. And yet so often in American history, it's people like that that get passed up, like Seward and Chase get passed up for that second right lawyer from Illinois, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, now, uh, tell me about Garfield as a person. You've told me a little bit about his family life, but about his, you know, his marriage and, and his, his children. What, what do you know about that? Yeah, he, well, he was, of course, he was married. Um, his wife's name was Lucretia uh, Rudolph was her maiden name. So Lucretia Rudolph Garfield. And, you know, they married in, uh, in 1858 and they stayed married until his death. Um, you know, they, it's pretty well known that the first several years of their marriage were frankly very difficult. Um, you know, he was, he, he traveled a lot, whether it was because he was going to Columbus to be a, a state Senator for, for part of the year. Uh, then when the civil war came, of course he was gone for, you know, really over two years, uh, with, with a few trips home here and there, uh, to serve in, in the army. Um, and at one point she, she estimated that in the first five years of their marriage, they only spent about 20 weeks together. Um, so they were, you know, they were very distant from one another for quite a long time. Um, they did eventually come back together, but it really took him being in Congress and, them living with him in you know in Washington D.C. for part of the year, and her always back in Ohio with the children. Uh, it took a few years of that for them to say we don't want to live like this anymore. And they finally, uh, eventually, built a, a house in Washington D.C. so that the whole family could be together. Um, they had seven children total. Uh, two of their children did not survive childhood, so their very first child was a daughter who died at about three and a half. And then their very last child was a son uh, who died at, uh, just before his second birthday. Uh, so their other five children, four sons, one daughter, uh, all survived, you know, childhood and, you know, grew up and all got married and had families of their own and had successful careers. Two of them ended up serving in government. Um, so, you know, he did, he did, uh, he and his wife did pr produce a, a very, well-regarded family. And uh, I will say we are very fortunate uh, in my day job uh, that we've already talked about. We do still have a lot of Garfield descendants here in the Cleveland area. And, um, you know, we see them a lot. They, they come to the site all the time. They come to our events. They come to see the house. Uh, they bring, you know, family and friends to, to, to visit. So it's, it's really a special thing for us to still have them here and to, you know, see people who, even though they obviously never knew their great, great, great grandfather or whatever, um, to still have pride in their their family name and 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 what this family meant to not only to Northeast Ohio but to the country. 
Right. Now, th- that's that is pretty cool uh being able to know the descendants of of President Garfield. Uh so one thing I was interested in, so we had that episode on the 1876 election. That was one of our earliest episodes and uh as you mentioned that the, it's often kind of portrayed or assumed that it it was the end of reconstruction, but then uh here's Garfield who uh gives this this great speech in Congress uh and in the revolution in Congress speech and then he's kind of it sounds like he's basically kind of this leader of those who want to deal with the unfinished business of the civil war and you know want to take us back to what Lincoln was doing uh and to take care of the um to be the conscience of the Republican Party when it came to the rights of African Americans. So, with all that said, it, it it seems to me that there was a significant faction in the Republican Party. First of all, just the fact that Garfield got the nomination, but since he was kind of a leader in that, it seemed like there was a significant faction in the Republican Party that still cared about those issues and still cared about Reconstruction and weren't ready to to give it up. Is that right? Well, certainly, yeah, certainly in in uh, in eighteen seventy six, um, there was a very very strong Republican effort to make sure that that the Republicans held on to to the White House, and a lot of that effort was driven by the idea that you know even Rutherford B Hayes, who was the the Republican candidate in eighteen seventy six, said that you know a Democratic victory means turning the government over to the rebels. And so there was a very strong, uh, strong push for that in 1876. And, um, you know, Hayes, of course, as we all know the story, I think, you know, loses the popular vote. Tilden beats him by, I think it's something like 250,000 votes or so, um, which, of course, all of us, you know, here today know that, that it's, you know, it happens from time to time where a president loses the popular vote, but still manages to win the Electoral College and become president. It's happened twice in the last 20 years, in fact, mm-hmm. uh, including with the current uh, administration. Um, so, you know, there was this concern about, yes, Republicans obviously wanted to stay in power, naturally, and all political parties do, uh, of course. But there was uh, this also this, this concern, and, and Hayes, I think, expressed it best when he thought he had lost the election. He said, you know, I can stand it and the party, meaning the Republican Party can stand it. But I fear for, you know, for the black man of the South, um, basically meaning he realized that if if the Democratic Party uh, took over the White House and, and won the Congress, then, um, you know, conditions in the South were going to go. We're going to get a lot worse very, very quickly. I would also like to to defend Rutherford v. Hayes just a little bit here. Another one of these presidents that I think has been unfairly labeled as obscure uh, or unimportant. Um, you know, there's this, I, in fact, I even mentioned, used it in, in, in the book, um, this quote from Thomas Wolfe uh, from the, I don't, I don't know, the 1930s or whenever it was that, you know, where he's writing, he calls these guys the, lo- the lost Americans. And he talks about, you know, they're their gravelly bearded faces, which one had sideburns and which one had whiskers, you know, and which was which, you know, basically saying, eh, it doesn't really matter. They're, they're all unimportant. And, and, you know, even historians, I think have, uh, some historians at least have, have really treated the presidency like this, really this kind of black hole, <laughs> uh, between, you know, 
between Abraham Lincoln and Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and of course, that's just not the case. And Hayes and, you know, Ed Garfield are, are two of those guys that have sort of been lumped in that. And I just think it's, it's unfortunate and it's unfair. But I, I want to defend Hayes a little bit because there's, for, for years and years and years, there's been this assumption that, or this feeling that, you know, oh, Reconstruction ended because Hayes made this dirty deal to, Right. To become president, you know, that, that, okay, well, rather fraud you know, Hayes. Yes, thing, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Louisiana, South Carolina, and Florida agree to turn their votes over to Hayes, uh, their electoral votes. So he becomes president and not Tilden. Uh, and therefore Hayes agrees to pull troops out of the South. Well, that is a gross oversimplification. Troops were already being pulled out of parts of the South. Uh, troops remained in other parts of the South. The real issue there was, Southerners didn't like federal soldiers, uh, you know, American U.S. soldiers. They like being occupied. Uh, they didn't like being occupied, and they especially didn't like soldiers at polling places. Uh, and they, right. you know, and, and of course, they were there to protect the physical safety and the the, the voting rights of of, of black men. And uh, so, Southerners really hated that. And so Hayes did agree to kind of, you know, in some areas, pull that back a little bit. But this idea that you know Hayes just magically decided to pull all the all the federal troops out of the south in order to become president is is it's just not true this was already happening before hayes became president right now one of the quotes that i i love that you cited in the book was when garfield and i believe this was at the eve on the eve of the 1880 uh, presidential race he said quote I long ago made the resolution that I would never let the presidential fever get any lodgment in my brain. I think it is the one office in this nation that for his own peace, no man uh, should set his heart on. Uh, You know, it's one of those uh, things that I think uh, a lot of people in Washington could probably relate to. Uh, What what changed? I mean, it sounded like he didn't want to get his hopes up. And then, uh, you know, how did that how did that happen as he kind of surprisingly found himself becoming the nominee? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think I, I firmly believe that every representative and senator in Congress at all times probably really deep down thinks they should really be president. <laughs> um, sure. So, you know, I, I, I think that's just part of, of, of being in, in that job. Um, and, you know, everyone sort of fantasize, all of those, those folks fantasize about, you know, having, you know, being the president, I'm sure, uh, or at one time or another, at least, you know, Garfield had seen so many of his, his friends and his, his colleagues in, in the party get that presidential fever, as he called it. They just got, and probably the best example of that, uh, of someone who was cl- really close with Garfield personally is, is James Blaine, who was the Senator from Maine, you know, had been speaker of the house for a while, had been in the house for quite some time and then went to the Senate and, and Blaine was just, he could not shake it. He just wanted to be president so badly. And, uh, and you know, he never quite got there. Um, and, and so Garfield saw, I think, how sort of destructive that was and how distracting it was. And so he – and, yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure James Garfield deep down wanted to be president at some point. The thing about Garfield is in 1880, he's 48 years old. He's so young. he's a young guy. He's a he's a young man, and of course he assumes he's got decades of life left, probably decade, per, perhaps decades of political 
you know, political office left. So, you know, I'm sure Garfield thought about running for president at some point, but I really don't believe he thought that that was likely in 1880. Uh, there were, there were, you know, everybody assumed or most people assumed that whether they liked it or not, U.S. Grant would probably be the nominee in 1880 because he, you know, everyone knew he was more than willing to come back after being out of office for four years and getting more and more uh, distressed by by Hayes and and then and, and how he was running the country and the party, uh, everyone knew Grant was was willing to come back and and um, you know treat it as a a duty if he was nominated again. Blaine, of course, was was interested. John Sherman from Ohio, a friend, another friend of Garfield's, the brother of the famous General William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, who's Secretary of the Treasury under Hayes, also wants to be the nominee in 1880. Garfield in 1880 is much more interested in becoming a senator. And um, he, in, in 1870, late 1879, uh, realizes that, that there's going to be an opportunity for that at the beginning of 1880 to be elected to the Senate. Obviously, the people don't elect their own senators at this point in American history. They're, they're elected by the, the state legislatures. And so he works behind the scenes with John Sherman, the Secretary of the Treasury, who's from Ohio, uh, to get himself elected to the Senate. And then sort of the, the quid pro quo, if you will, which is probably a loaded term to use in you know 2020. Maybe I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't use that term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at any rate, the, you know sort of the, 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 the deal is that Sherman will, you know, speak favorably of Garfield and uh, to the Ohio legislature. So that Garfield gets elected to the Senate, and then Garfield will in turn support Sherman's bid for the Republican nomination. So, you know, Garfield wasn't seeking the the Republican nomination in 1880. Now, there were some people who felt like who kind of saw the writing on the wall that this had the potential to be a very contentious Republican convention in 1880, and that the possibility was there that a compromise candidate would be needed, that neither Grant nor Blaine nor Sherman nor anyone else would have enough support to get the nomination. And there were those people out there who thought Garfield would be a great compromise choice, and he didn't try to tamp that down. You know, he kept his options open. But ultimately, he he did not think there was really anything to this. And he certainly didn't. Ex- he did not go to that convention expecting to be nominated. He, he went there to uh, to to speak to to support Sherman uh, to kind of manage Sherman's efforts on the floor and at Sherman's request to give the speech nominating John Sherman to be the Republican candidate. If Garfield thought that there was really any legitimate chance he would have been nominated, I don't believe he would have gone to the convention. I think he would have found a way to get out of that because it was just considered so unseemly uh, and so inappropriate for someone to so overtly seek that office. Um, so I, I just don't think he would have allowed himself to to go to that convention if he really thought there was anything to this. So I do believe he he went there really not expecting what what ended up happening. Yeah, it, it's it's a pretty amazing twist of fate when you consider that he was involved in the 1876 commission to de- to adjudicate the dispute of that election, and so here he is playing this huge role on deciding the winner of that election then he's 
he goes to this convention thinking that he's going to play a certain role to nominate other someone else, and he ends up getting the nomination. And it 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 must have been kind of uh, to him. It must have struck him as such an a, incredible twist of fate uh, to do that. Um, now you you alluded to the eighteen eighty race. You've mentioned the people that were running. Uh, you mentioned Grant and Blaine and Sherman and all those people. Uh, what were the issues that people were talking about in that race, and how how did it play out? How did he become that candidate? Was it one of those everyone deadlocked and he became the compromise choice? Well, yeah, the the primary issue really at that convention was um, people who thought it was a great idea for Grant to run for a third term, and people who were opposed to the idea of anyone running for a third term. Obviously, at this point in, in American history, there's no constitutional amendment that says someone can't run uh, more than twice like there is now. Um, but it was just seen as you know not the right thing to do because of the example that had been set, of course, by George Washington, who you know, as the first president served two terms and then voluntarily walked away, even though he could have been elected again and, and again and again, probably. Um, so no one at that point had broken that precedent. And no, you know, many people, including James Garfield, did not think that that precedent should be broken. So really, the, the, the primary uh, issue at the convention was the third term for Grant. Um, the other issue that really separated the two factions between the so-called stalwart Republicans who were the Grant faction and the somewhat derisively named half-breeds uh, who were the you know anti third term and and you know a little more moderate I guess you would say in today's terms faction was the civil service um, the idea of you know should the civil service continue as the spoils system this is the system that Grant and and the stalwarts liked where you know hey to the victors go the spoils and we won the election and we can dole out as many jobs as we want to whomever we want regardless of their their experience or qualifications. Um, and then on the other side, you had some people who were, and, and really not all of them were really even all that passionate about civil service reform or what Roscoe Conkling called snivel service reform. Um, mm -hmm. But there were, there were lots of people who were, okay, starting to come around to the idea that, yeah, maybe we need to do something here because we get all of these folks who are unqualified and, and, and are, you know, so in some cases creating messes that need to be cleaned up. Um, and, and are given these jobs really only because they, they are a friend of Grant or they're a friend of a friend of a friend of Grant or they're a 15th cousin twice removed or, or whatever. Uh, that doesn't, you know, that's nice that they have that connection, but it doesn't make them qualified to be a, a minister to another country or a postmaster or, or anything else. So yeah. th now this is the system that, uh, people will remember was instituted by Jackson, the spoil system. And, and it seemed that this emerged as an issue, uh, at least in part because of the scandals under President Grant, I would imagine, right? Well, yeah. I mean, and that, and that was one of the reasons that people were so leery of a third term for Grant. Of course, there's the precedent set by Washington, which nobody wants to see, you know, to see done away with because of how revered Washington was then and still is even today in many circles. Um, but also, yes, you know, eight years of Grant uh, had seen a number of scandals. You know, we, we know now that you know, 
the evidence shows that Grant himself was personally honest. You know, he wasn't uh, on the take or anything like that. The problem with Grant for those eight years that he was president was that he often surrounded himself with people who didn't have the best con- the, the, the best interests of the country at heart. They were there to line their own pockets or to give out favors or whatever. So, you know, it was really by the time Grant's presidency ended, there were a number of people, including a lot of Republicans, who, though they still revered Grant as, you know, the general who who really won the Civil War and the, you know, the president who had really done a lot for African-Americans, had tried to, to guarantee equality, had tried to protect African-Americans, had gone up against the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, you know, Grant did those things and deserves credit for that from, from historians and from the public even today. Um, but there were a lot of people that, despite all of that, were, were happy to see Grant go at the end of those eight years because of the scandals, which they felt were, you know, People were getting tired of it, and they were really kind of dragging the, the Republican Party down. Where did uh, Garfield fall in terms of the uh, the civil service issue? You know, Garfield was was not all that passionate, to be honest, about civil service at this point. Uh, the thing that really made Garfield come start coming around on civil service was what happened to him after he became president elect. Mm-hmm, right. So, you know, we, 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 you know, he goes through the campaign, he wins a very narrow election. And then all of a sudden, once he's president elect, people just start descending on him, both in Ohio, uh, you know, at, at, at our site where, where he, where he lived and where he stayed pretty much all the time between the, the election and the inauguration. And then once he got to Washington and, and took office and was, you know, in the early days of his presidency, just thousands of office seekers. And it was tradition at that point that they, you know, if they were willing to stand in line, then at some point they would get an opportunity to be heard uh, and, and explain why they wanted to be, you know, the postmaster of Menor, Ohio, or the minister to France or, or, or whatever. And, um, and so, you know, Garfield got extremely frustrated very quickly with, the numbers of people and with the demands that people were making. That's really the thing that made him start coming around on civil service reform. So he was a very late in his life convert to civil service reform. In in it, at the time of the 1880 election, you know, Garfield was considered a half-breed Republican, not so much because of how he felt about civil service reform, but primarily because he opposed the third term for Grant. I see. And those those issues were inextricably linked, it appears. Um, what is a general election like in 1880? And obviously, it's very different from now. Uh, back then, people wouldn't want to show their ambition uh, when you run for president. And it, it seemed that he had a little bit of a dilemma because he was a great speaker, a great orator, but uh, – you didn't campaign and barnstorm back then. So how, how did he run his campaign? How did he get his message out? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're absolutely right. You know, it was considered, it was considered inappropriate for someone to, especially for the presidency to really seek, uh, this office. And so, and, and Hayes, uh, president, you know, president Rutherford B. Hayes told Garf and Gar- Hayes, by the way, was thrilled with Garfield's nomination. You know, he's from Ohio. He's a solid Republican. So Hayes is really happy. Blaine was really happy. Uh, the stalwart faction obviously was not thrilled, <laughs> but, um, but, um, Hayes tells Garfield, you know, don't say anything to anybody, 
sit cross-legged and look wise. That's your job for the next, you know, four months or five months. Uh, speaking can only hurt your chances of being elected. And so, you know, Garfield, even though he is, as you say, a, a very powerful and skilled speaker, he likes to speak. He like he's got a very outgoing personality. He likes talking to people. Uh, he plans to follow this advice. But what changes for him is that people start showing up unannounced, uninvited, <laughs> unexpected at his home in, in Ohio. Uh, and they really are showing up to just kind of get a look at him and see who he is. You know, he's very well known in, uh, inside Ohio. Uh, people in surrounding states maybe know him a little bit, but people from other parts of the country don't know much about him. And of course, it's 1880. It's not 2020. So they can't, you know, follow him on social media or any of this stuff like we do now. And that we expect candidates to do, you know, have a presence on, tw you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is. Uh, so they really, they go, they can either go to where he is and try to see him or, and, and maybe hear him say something. Or they can read the newspapers, which many of them did. But, you know, papers were highly partisan at that point and oftentimes very openly allied with one party or another. Uh, and so that really changed things for Garfield when people started showing up at the property. Um, and eventually Garfield started, you know, I think felt obligated, frankly, to at least acknowledge that these people had come to see him, uh, and just say a few words, you know, he, he wasn't giving speeches like we would, you know, like we expect to hear from candidates today where they, you know, they're very openly seeking the office. They're asking for people's votes. They're talking about policy and what they want to do about, you know, certain issues. Uh, these are not the types of speeches Garfield gives, but he does start giving these sort of uh, somewhat informal speeches from the front porch of the home. And, uh, and this is where we get the idea of the front porch presidential campaign. So this is really, you know, Garfield's 1880 campaign here in Northeast Ohio is where that idea was born. It was the first front porch presidential campaign. And then the, after, for the next couple of, you know, decades or so, really, there were a number of other front porch campaigns as well, but it really started here with James Garfield. Right. Now, it's interesting because they talk about the front porch campaign with uh, McKinley and Harding, also Ohio presidents, but I, I, I didn't know that, that Garfield was kind of one of the, he was really the forerunner of all of that. Um, mm -hmm. So the previous election, 1876, was won by one electoral vote closest <laughs> in American history. What does the electoral map look like in 1880? What states did he have to win? Well, he wanted, of course, to, to win as many as possible. Obviously, every candidate does. Um, but there were a couple of really vital swing states that he had to have. And uh, one of those was Indiana. Um, obviously, he expected to win states like Ohio and, and Pennsylvania. Um, but Indiana was a swing state. And the other swing state was New York. And New York was definitely a toss-up because in 1876, uh, the Democratic candidate was Samuel Tilden, who, of course, at, when he ran for president in 1876, was the governor of New York. So, you know, he had a sort of a, a home field advantage there, I guess you would say, in, in 1876. So New York was a, a toss-up in 1880. No one quite knew how it was going to go. The other thing to keep in mind, especially you know, in the early stages of the campaign was uh, a lot of people expected Tilden to run again in 1880. I mean, he had been kind of, you know, 
it's almost like an Al Gore situation from 2000 where, you know, he can tell people, hey, I, w- I used to be the, the next president of the United States. Uh, and, and Tilden really did have a, you know, a right to say that as well in 1876 when he had clearly won the popular vote by, you know, quarter of a million votes or so. So a lot of people felt like, uh, Tilden would run again in 1880 to really reclaim what should have been his four years before. Uh, and certainly a lot of Democrats wanted him to run again, uh, because they felt like, Hey, he had won the popular vote the last time. And the only reason he didn't become president was because of this sort of corrupt bargain to use a, you know, a, a phrase from the Jacksonian era. Um, so, um, so then, you know, but, but Tilden kind of hemmed and hawed about whether or not he wanted to run again in 1880. And then finally the Democrats realized they just had to, they had to find somebody else. And they made a very good choice in 1880, I think with Winfield Scott Hancock, um, you know, not a great choice in terms of political experience because he had none. He's a West Pointer and a career army officer, but you know, they really negated a very powerful argument by, by nominating Hancock. And that of course was the whole idea of waving the bloody shirt and, you know, accusing Democrats of being, you know, the party of secession and the party of slavery and the party that, that was disloyal to the union and the party that, you know, was responsible for the the indirectly responsible for the deaths of over 300,000, you know, loyal Americans who died fighting to, to, to save the union and, 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 and in slavery. Um, they couldn't wave that bloody shirt at Winfield Scott Hancock because he fought for the North too. He fought for the United States, uh, and, and was wounded, you know, several times and bled for the United States. And so they really negated that, that, um, that issue when they nominated Hancock. So what we ended up with in 1880 was the only election in American history where both uh, candidates, both major party candidates, were Civil War veterans of the were Union Civil War veterans. Uh, and mm. so that you know that that was also going to be a challenge uh, because it negated that powerful Republican argument about the waving the bloody shirt. Uh, Hancock is a native Pennsylvanian. He's born near Philadelphia. Uh, but at the time of his nomination, he was living in New York. He was the commander of the Department of the Atlantic, which was based in New York. And so he had some New York ties as well. So Indiana and New York were really uh, two of the major swing states that Garfield uh, knew that in order to have a chance to win, he, he was he was going to have to win Indiana and New York. And you, so he wins the presidency by a relatively comfortable margin, 214 to 155 in the Electoral College, even though it was maybe the closest election in popular vote in history. Um, he was 49, as we mentioned. And for comparison, I, I, I had looked this up. Uh, most of his, many of his predecessors were much older, oftentimes 60 or above. And that goes for John Adams, Jackson, obviously William Henry Harrison. Um, so now he's president, relatively young president, probably a bit surprised to be president. What, uh, agenda was he form? Did he formulate in those first uh, few months uh, after the election, but also in the few months that he was in office? Uh, yeah, and and you're right in, in terms of the, the how close the election was. It, it was a comfortable margin in the electoral college, but the the popular vote victory was razor thin, something somewhere less than ten thousand votes. So I think around seventy two or seventy four hundred votes is sort of the commonly uh, accepted figure. So yeah, you're right, very very close. But once he became president, uh, you know, he, he, of course, spent a lot of time as president-elect dealing with those office seekers, as, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, 
So he spent a lot of time dealing with those folks. Uh, he spent a lot of time trying to figure out who did he want in his cabinet. Uh, he agonized over writing his inaugural address, as most presidents do. Uh, but you know, he he uh, he agonized over his so much that he decided about 36 hours before the elect before the inauguration to start all over. Uh, so he agonized quite a bit over that speech. Um, but you know, coming into the presidency, you know, he he was starting to come around to the idea of civil service reform because of the experience he, he'd had as, as president-elect with all the office seekers. Uh, you know, he, he was uh, interested in, in uh, some expanding American uh, or I- increasing uh, relationships with Latin American countries. Uh, he made James Blaine, who, you know, had been a, a contender for that nomination in, in, in Chicago. Um, he made Blaine his secretary of state. So he and Blaine were starting to plan a, uh, a conference of, of, uh, nations that would have, would have taken place in Washington in late 1881, uh, of, uh, nations from central and, and South America. Uh, another major priority that he had that, that later came to pass under his successor was, uh, kind of rebuilding the American Navy. Um, he wanted to, to start moving the Navy towards, uh, moving away from wooden ships and towards steel ships. Um, so I think, you know, certainly, uh, those relationships with Latin American countries and, and the modernization of the Navy are two things that had he lived, I think he certainly would have, um, would have, would have been able to, to make some, some good progress on. And then of course, obviously the, uh, you know, the, and, and kind of the whole really angle that I take with this book is, is the, is the, the issue of civil rights, uh, Garfield being one of those Republicans who was still in 1880, really, uh, talking to to the country and talking to even his own fellow Republicans about the need to continue to to work with the formerly enslaved in the South to improve their conditions and and to you know guarantee their 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 equality and their their rights to vote and 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 um, other rights to which they were entitled by those Reconstruction uh, constitutional amendments and he did dedicate you know a, a fairly significant uh, portion of his um, uh, inaugural address to discussing civil rights as well and talking about how, you know, the, uh, the, as he, as he said, the elevation of the Negro race, uh, from slavery to the full rights of citizenship is the most important constitutional or the most important political change we have known since adoption of the constitution. So he was, and he talked about, you know, how, how important this was and how, you know, yes, he knew there were hard feelings, but everybody needed to work together to, to, to try to, you know, make the country a better place for, for African Americans as, as, as well as everybody else. And so I think he would have made great strides on, uh, on that issue as well. Unfortunately, it was not to be, uh, just a few months into his presidency, he is assassinated. Uh, what are some of the interesting aspects of that assassination that most people don't know? Well, it was, I mean, I think the most important thing to remember about the assassination is that, that, uh, Charles Guiteau, who is the, the guy who shot Garfield on July 2nd, 1881, uh, when Garfield had been president for just four months, uh, he was very, very, very much, um, you know, mentally disturbed, deranged. Um, there was a political angle to this assassination, uh, in that Guiteau in his derangement, um, and in his, you know, his, his, his mental illness, 
believed that he, Gateau, had really been a very important part of Garfield winning the election, especially in New York, uh, which ended up, you know, Garfield did end up winning and did end up being the critical state that put him over the top in the Electoral College. Um, Gateau had just kind of hung around Republican headquarters in New York for, you know, for weeks or months and, and, you know, kind of convinced himself that, oh, you know, he played this really major role in Garfield winning the election and therefore he went to Washington and uh, decided he wanted to work for the administration, and he became one of these guys who was standing in line at the White House trying to get an audience with either the president or, or, or you know, a secretary or something like that to make his case for a for a job for a political appointment. Uh, and you know, he he kind of he kept coming back and you know afterwards when they were investigating him after he shot Garfield you know one of Garfield's secretaries mentioned that he remembered seeing Gateau at the White House at least 15 times um so he just kept coming back uh and really even stalked the president of the United States for a while you know this is 1881 there's no secret service protection for presidents i mean at the end of the working day Oftentimes, James Garfield would leave the White House and walk down the street by himself to go visit a friend or go to dinner or whatever. Uh, it was different back then. Quite, it, quite different. Yeah. Uh, it so, it almost know, sounds like they could make a movie like uh, Travis Bickle, Taxi Driver Part Two version of, of this. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know the, mm-hmm. I, 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 to tell you the truth, I think that's a great comparison. You know, if anybody's seen Taxi Driver, and surely a lot of people listening have, and remember, you know, kind of how that character was was portrayed by De Niro, and you know, it was a masterful performance. Uh, I, I think that's actually not a bad comparison, to tell you the truth. Uh, Guiteau, you know, got it in his mind that he was he was important and he was entitled to this job. You know, he had he was had this narcissistic personality, he has these delusions of grandeur, and um, when he finally was told in very very harsh terms by none other than James Blaine, the secretary of state, uh, after he, uh, you know, kind of accosted Blaine about becoming a, a U.S. minister to, uh, to Vienna, or he said he would also accept Paris, uh, yeah. uh you know, what a nice guy, you know, he's willing to take such a, such a, such a, a demotion. Real, real that he team would, player. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, and Blaine finally got so tired of seeing him. He just told him one day, don't bother me again. You are not going to get this consulship. Uh, and, and that's when then Gateau and his, again, his mental, uh, his mental illness decided that, you know, the, really the thing to do, you know, Garfield was clearly a threat because he was, he was taking the Republican party down the, the wrong road and he was going to institute this dreaded civil service reform. And he, Gateau was a, you know, a dedicated stalwart Republican who believed in, in the patronage system and that therefore the, the the most natural thing to do, the most logical thing to do in his mind was to kill the president of the United States and make the vice president, who was Chester A. Arthur, who was from New York, who was from the stalwart wing of the party, to make Arthur president. And, and that would therefore save the Republican Party from civil service reform and therefore save save the country. Right. And uh, it's amazing that figures like that, uh, who normally would not have any impact, ends up changing the course of, of the the history of the country. Um, now, one question I do want to ask you is that, and I, I have a feeling that as someone who studied Garfield, uh, this is probably something that you've thought about, is 
James Garfield, here's a man who, uh, unfortunately and unfairly, has been relegated to obscurity. Um, and here we are in 2020, and the country's so so different than what it was in 1880, and yet we still deal with a lot of the same issues. What does James Garfield's story, how does it speak to us right now in in 2020 America? How does his story apply? And what, what can it say to us and what lessons can it give us? Well, I mean, I think there there's a universal lesson there, certainly in, you know, the, the, the value of persistence and resilience and, you know, being goal oriented. And, you know, Garfield's a guy, as I said at the beginning, he's born very poor and really worked hard for everything he got in life. And, you know, he, he really is the personification of this, you know, idea, whether it's genuine or not that we like to believe about America, which is, oh, you know, anybody can, you know, rise from the, the lowest of circumstances and, and become the most powerful person in the world. Uh, you know, again, how much value that or, or truth there is to that is certainly debatable. But um, Garfield is a good example of that. So I do think there's a sort of a universal lesson there about you know, resilience and, and that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, I wanted to defend Rutherford B. Hayes a little bit that, you know, he's, he's not the guy who ended reconstruction. Um, and, you know, I, I, I said that even by 1880, I thought, or I, and I think that, that, uh, reconstruction wasn't over. And I would say, to be perfectly honest, in the year 2020, reconstruction is not over. And look at what is happening. You know, look at some of the social movements uh, that, that are going on in this country right now. Look at some of the terrible things that are happening to African Americans. It's clear that you know the the promises of uh, uh, of those Reconstruction amendments to the Constitution, the promises of equality before the law, uh, are promises in in name only. And we don't have full equality for everyone in this country yet. We just don't. We've made great strides, but if we think that we're already at the end of the road, then we're sorely mistaken. And I think some of the events of the last few months have, have shown that, that, you know, you can go all the way back to, to, you know, to James Garfield in 1880 saying, hey, Republicans, you know, we've done a lot of great work, but we still have much great work to accomplish. Uh, you can go to 1968 with Dr. Martin Luther King saying to the people of the United States, all we're asking you to do is, is be true to what you put on paper. You know, you wrote in 1776 that all men are created equal, but you don't treat us that way. And I would say in, in 2020, we're, we're still working toward that. And we still see some terrible things that happen uh, in, in, in the public sphere that show that we're still working toward that. Uh, we are still trying to really uh, embrace, fully embrace that new birth of freedom that, that Abraham Lincoln talked about in the Gettysburg Address. Um, and again, we've made great strides, but, but if anyone thinks that we're all the way there, you've only got to watch the news uh, or, or go online and see some of the, the terrible things that are happening and, and, you know, I think if you understand this history and James Garfield is a big part of that, uh, as are people like Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and many of the others that we've talked about in the course of this conversation, uh, if you know that history, 
you can understand, I think, why uh, minority groups, whether it's African Americans or or women, or although I guess women aren't a minority, so please edit that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but you know, whether it's African Americans or LGBTQ uh, members of that community, uh, so many people out there still you know, correctly don't feel that they're, they are equal before the law. And, um, you know, I think that I'd like, I like to think as a historian and certainly someone who's interested in James Garfield, that had Garfield lived, uh, he, he may have affected some change there and, and been able to make things better. Um, I'm not naive enough to believe that had he lived and served a full term or two terms as president that, you know, none of these, these, these terrible things that have happened in 2020 would, uh, would have happened. Uh, or that there would be no need for you know a movement like Black Lives Matter or something like that. Um, but I hope that perhaps uh, he may have been able to to be at least uh, a good example of you know the the right way to do things and and to be on the right side of history. Um, so I think that you know there's there are lessons in in all of these presidents uh, who even the ones that as we've talked about kind of get overlooked or or viewed as as you know, not as, not as important, you know, they can't all be Abraham Lincoln's and George Washington's and Theodore Roosevelt's. Uh, mm-hmm. but, um, I, I certainly like to think that Garfield may have been one of those had he lived. Uh, but even more importantly, I, I, I hope that, and I think that based on what I know about him, uh, that he may, you know, he certainly would have, uh, he certainly did stand on the right side of history on a lot of issues, not every single one. Um, you know, he was not, for example, in, in favor of women's suffrage, um, which, you know, in 2020 looks like a very boneheaded position to take, especially for a guy that had a wife and a daughter and, and a mother who was still alive when, when he was president. Um, but so he wasn't, you know, perfect by any means. And I, I don't mean to suggest that he was. Um, but uh, I do think on a lot of issues, he, he was on the right side. And I think that that could have meant very good things for the country had he lived and been given a chance to, to serve a, a full term or two full terms as president. So the book is called The Last Lincoln Republican, The Presidential Election of 1880 by Benjamin uh, Todd Arrington. Uh, he goes by Todd, but it is listed on Amazon uh, as Benjamin Arrington. Uh, Todd, it's been great chatting with you, and we appreciate the work that you did to put this book together and to learn about this president and this important time that's often overlooked and about an American figure who is often overlooked and yet had a a major impact on our country. Thanks very much. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode... We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. 
We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.